listen to this podcast at your peril because spoilers lie ahead. Make sure you've seen all the episodes of Shadow and Bone and welcome to the Grishaverse. I, growing up, did not have the kind of household that I think a lot of my friends had. This is author Lee Barduco. Um, I was raised by a single mother. We lived with my grandparents for a time. My mom worked full time, you know, my whole life. And, you know, we didn't eat dinner together. We didn't, I didn't, you know, everybody fought at holidays, the few holidays we had. And I didn't really find my people until I went to college. I didn't find the people that I connected with and who got me and, and who I think to this day have my back. Lee wanted to write about this kind of thing, of finding your crew as a young adult. She had already achieved success with her books about Alina Starkov, The Sun Summoner. I had written this um, Chosen One trilogy, and I really wanted to write a story about the people who aren't chosen, the people who are the world views as expendable, the people who don't have royal blood or grand destinies, and how they can still carve out a place for themselves together. And those people became the Crows. They're a trio of outsiders who form a crew to pull off heists and crimes. But they become more than that to each other. I sort of discovered as we, as we were filming, it became clear that none of these people were half as powerful alone as they would be together. You know, you take yeah. one piece out of the puzzle and the whole thing kind of falls apart. Freddie Carter plays Kaz, the leader of the Crows. The other members are Jesper and Inej, and they are beloved by the readers of Lee's books. Just listen to what we heard on YouTube when Netflix dropped the teaser for the show. <laughs> I'm like stopped on Kaz's face. I just let his cheekbones. The first of the crows we see is Jesper. He definitely embodies that sly, flirtatious personality. Oh my God, Inej looks so fucking good. Look at that fucking smirk. That's a smirk where she knows she's about to kill somebody. And you know what? Good for her. Welcome to Behind the Scenes. This season, we're going deep into the world, characters, and locations of Shadow and Bone, the new Netflix fantasy adventure series based on the novels by Lee Barduco. My name is Brandon Jenkins. I'm your host, and I'm also a longtime fan of all things fantasy. Today on the podcast, we meet the people who brought the crows to life, and we unpack the idea of having a found family, whether you're a heist crew, a band of actors, or you're in a writer's room. Oh yeah, and we've got to talk about that goat. So, let's get started. On our last episode, we found out how the writers and the actors brought the story of Alina Starkoff to life. Now, we do the same with Kaz, Jesper, and Dinesh, the Crows. Hi, my name is Amita Suman. Um, I play Inej in Shadow and Bone. Inej is an assassin with a conscience. Hey, I'm Kit Young, and I play Jesper in Shadow and Bone. He's a sharpshooter and a gambler, a gunslinger, and he can never walk away from a wager. Hi, my name is Freddie Carter. I play Kaz Brecker, who is a rising star of the criminal underworld in Ketterdam. Ketterdam is where we first meet the Crows. It's a bustling city filled with casinos, brothels, and pubs. Think Las Vegas if it was in Monaco, with a dash of Amsterdam's red light district thrown in. In episode one of the Netflix show, we enter a large, smoky gambling den, packed with people. 
Crystal chandeliers hang from the ceiling. Paintings of dancing women adorn the musty green walls. And barmaids bring drinks to gamblers who are convinced it's their night to hit the jackpot. This is the Crow Club. Hey, you can take Zimby coin, yes? Let me see that. Sitting at one of those tables is Jesper, the wild card of the crows. Zemini coin can take a bullet with a knockoff. He's young, unpredictable, and charming. And his weakness is gambling. You get the feeling he came to the Crow Club one day and never left. He's also a master gunslinger. Like, it's that classic, like, American movie thing of, like, he's the greatest there is. And it's like, okay, well, I've got to look all right then, don't I? Actor Kit Young had to make Jesper's gun twirling look easy, but it's a lot harder than it seems. And he had a steep learning curve when it came to handling the pistols on set. We hadn't even started shooting yet, and I dropped one and it smashed. And the stunt team started ripping me, telling me that, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd broken one, like, the only pair. But then once we got the real guns, like, it came in this briefcase, like, as if it, you know, like, in Pulp Fiction, they have the briefcase that shines and you never really know what's in it, but you know, it was like that. And then everyone gets out their iPhones and is watching me hold these hugely heavy weapons. And they're like, go on, do it. And I'm like, I don't think I can. <laughs> Jesper is the right-hand man to Kaz, who runs the Crow Club. No loud noises at the table, Jesper. Scare off the pigeons. Kaz is in control, just as a crime boss should be. One raise of an eyebrow can keep his team in check. Kaz also walks with a limp, so he always has his signature crow cane by his side. It's something that gave Freddie Carter insight into his character. So I sort of began thinking about the sort of most efficient way of using the cane and then the most efficient way of using it as a weapon and most efficient way of walking with it and it was a real key in because the most efficient way is basically sort of a kind of locomotion to be constantly moving. And then that that sort of led on to me thinking that, you know, he is a guy who's constantly, even if it's mentally, sort of constantly in motion, constantly thinking about the next thing and the next plan, sort of the next heist. Lee Barduco put some of herself into Kaz. When I was writing Six of Crows, you know, that was when I was first starting to use my cane, starting to use a mobility aid. Um, I have a degenerative bone disease, and I had to get over a lot of internalized ableism, a lot of ideas I had about, that I didn't even know I had about what it would mean for me as a fairly young woman to, to walk around with a cane. And when I wrote Six of Crows, you know, I created this ultimate badass, Kaz Brecker, who is this um, criminal superstar and who is terrifying to the people he meets. Hello, Inej. What information do you have for me tonight? Inej is the third member of the Crows. We meet her in Kaz's office at the Crow Club. A lead on a job. A big one. Enough money to change lives. Inej is a petite woman, brown skin, black hair, and a look that says she could kill you in a heartbeat. Oh, and at any given time, she's hiding over a dozen knives on her. Amita Suman plays Inej. And for me, what it came down to was like, when she entered the room, okay, how many escape routes are there? How many guards are there? Who can I take out? And at the same time, it's right, who's in the room that I really, really care about? Who do I need to protect? You know, she's always 20 steps ahead of everyone else in terms of, you know, getting out, protecting, defending and attacking. 
Inej spends her night scaling the rooftops of Ketterdam, listening for secrets and tips that Kaz can use as leverage to get ahead in the criminal underworld. This benefits her personally. She needs his help to buy out her indenture to a brothel called the Menagerie. Kaz, I got this lead from one of the girls at the Menagerie. They tell me things in case you would buy them out, like you did with me. I didn't buy you. I'm paying off your indenture. You know what I mean. This one girl, Kesh, she has skills. She's like me. I only invest in the one of a kind. She isn't like you. No one is. Okay, here's a deal with Inesh. She is Suli, a nomadic tribe known for their circus performances and acrobatics, which Inesh has been doing since she was a child. It's the perfect training ground for a spy. Kaz noticed that about her right away. Also, he's falling in love with her. The hardened criminal, the bastard of the barrel, feeling for his silent spy. But that's another story for another time. As a younger person, Inej was brought to Ketterdam against her will. One day, some slavers came and kidnapped her. Um, and she was taken away on a labor merchant ship um, all the way to Ketterdam. The owner of the menagerie, which is a brothel house in Kerch, buys her um, and she Inej becomes indentured to her and is kind of forced to work um, in this horrible situation. The Inej backstory opens a window into the underbelly of Ketterdam. It also shows how important her relationship is with Kaz and Jesper, who are helping her regain her freedom. It goes back to that theme of found family. What do you believe in? Myself. Why'd I even ask? And you. And Jasper. My crows. Because we flocked to your bidding. Like the animals of vengeance you named us after. Crows don't just remember the faces of people who wronged them. They also remember those who are kind. They tell each other who to look after and who to watch out for. They're just all a bit broken, right? They, they're all a bit broken, but together they're able to feel more whole. Shelley Mills is a writer and co-executive producer on Shadow and Bone. They were all alone in the world until they found each other. And they have found this way to coexist that just really works for all of them. And I feel like we got super lucky because the chemistry just sizzles on the screen. You know, when Freddie, Kit, and Amita met, they just instantly sparked with each other. And it felt like they'd known each other for years. And you can really sense that in, your, in their scenes together, which is it's just electric. And I know what a million Kruger means to me. What does it mean to you? Freedom. Fun. Like at least a few months. It's that belief in each other that sets the crows off on the biggest, most dangerous heist of their lives. To kidnap the Sun Summoner. Now, before we run off to Ravka, let's spend some time in Ketterdam. In season one of Shadow and Bone, we only spend two episodes in Ketterdam. But that didn't stop the show's creatives from going all in on building the world that Leigh Bardugo had written in her books. It was inspired by the Dutch Republic of the 1700s, and it is a cosmopolitan city full of commerce and tourism and trade. But just as they're the hub of all legal trade, they're also the hub of all illegal trade. And the question I wanted to ask with Ketterdam was sort of what happens when you let capitalism run amok? To build this city where capitalism has run amok, Shadow and Bone showrunner Eric Heiserer and the art department started with the money. 
what does the money look like? Uh, and I said, well, Kruga, it's important. It's a, it's a cash currency, so it's paper. And then they started asking me questions about what imagery would be on the bills. You know, are there figures, historical or otherwise, on it? And what colors are used? Is it color or is it just in one color? What is, uh, what is the written language? I, they had assumed English, but as soon as I saw it, I went, hang on. This kind of breaks me from the idea that it is in a fictional world. They hired the guy who created the Dothraki language for Game of Thrones, David J. Peterson. He wound up creating multiple languages for the show. This level of detail extended throughout the set, from the money, to the cards on the table, to the bottles of booze at the bar. The moment I saw a Hoyle deck of cards next to our fictional currency, I was like, well, this is not right. So my art department then had to come up with a brand new number system and what the numerals looked like, what it was based on. Instead of suits, there were still four suits, but that were not hearts, diamonds, spades, and clubs. The labels on all the alcohol at the bar, and the what were those bottles looking Couldn't like? Couldn't be just one language, because mm. they had some imported From stuff. Shuhan, Novi Zem. You know, what can we say about that history or that, you know, country by looking at what booze they manufacture? Eric and his team jumped down a rabbit hole when building the Crow Club and it made actors like Amita Suman feel more immersed into Ketterdam. And I just remember walking in into this bustling kind of casino areas with these beautiful chandeliers and such rich colors and, and the vibrancy. And, you know, again, with the little details, we had crows, poker chips, and every kind of um, alcoholic beverage or bottle was had its own label. It was just magnificent. I like, I, I truly felt like I was here and it was incredible. When I first saw shots from the show, I thought, oh my God, it looks expensive, which is important. You know, fantasy is not just about the bloody battles or uh, the magical powers. It's about that feeling of being transported. And you cannot transport somebody successfully if they're constantly thinking, well, you know, I feel like I could get that at the mall or I could order that online. They're instantly going to be pulled out of this world. We've met the crime family of the Grishaverse, but let's meet the crew that created them. I want to take you inside the Shadow and Bone writer's room. It all started in 2019 in a room in Los Angeles. We had these uh, two mobile whiteboards on wheels that we could just pivot around our big writer's room table that was full of snacks and toys. And the whiteboards were where we uh, put magnetized cards on and figured out the story beats for the episode. And yeah, it was messy, but it was fun. And right there... In the room were gifts from fans reminding the writers of their beloved crows. We had a super fan who sent us these little customized Funko Pop figurines of the crows. And so we had each of those in the middle of our table. Eric got into his philosophy for staffing the Shadow and Bone writer's room with my producer, Melissa Slaughter. Who are you looking for to come into this room and what impact do they have when they do come in? Like, how do you staff a writer's room? Very carefully <laughs> is the answer. Um, and it touches on something that I, I believe very passionately about this job. That is often said that, you know, the showrunner is like the TV auteur. That is the singular voice that gives drive to the whole show. I did not agree with that position uh, for the showrunner of Shadow and Bone. It is a world full of diverse cultures 
uh, albeit fictional ones, but still inspired by real world and historical examples. And for me to be the lone voice in this world felt extremely limiting. It was a fantastic writer's room. Again, writer Shelley Meals. The thing I really love about it is how balanced it was. You know, we had writers from vastly different backgrounds, different countries, genders, a broad mix of ages, sexual orientations. We even had a polyglot who speaks six languages. I mean, it was a genuinely, yeah. Okay, who's the person who speaks six languages? Um, Nick Culbertson. He um, co-wrote episode five. He's amazing. He, he gets his emails in Chinese, like, just so he can keep up on it. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's nuts. And Shelley has been mainlining fantasy and genre fiction since she could read and was especially thrilled to write for Inej and Alina's characters. Magic, vampires, demons, that's all my jam. So as a Black woman, I was often frustrated by the lack of diversity in the genre world, right? It's a fantasy world, so why is everybody white? Um, So the opportunity to be a part of this epic fantasy series with Eric at the helm and Lee's Amazing Books, where the two female leads are women of color, I was like beyond thrilled. And we met Christina Strain in our first episode. Her personal experience helped mold Alina's character. And growing up on a military base gave Christina insight into how the Ravkin armies might function. P.S. We're talking two different branches of the military. They should not be friendly. Like, you know, like, (laughs) the four branches are friendly, but at the same time, they have their opinions of each other. There was also Canadian writer and co-executive producer Dagan Frickland. Well, my wheelhouse is strong female protagonists that are reluctant heroes moving into a leadership role. Dagan's time at boarding school keyed her into the experience Selena Starkov had at the Little Palace. You know, we would have to have dinner with our headmistress, so there were very specific rules around cutlery and how you ate, when you could sit down, and when you could eat. In total, there were seven writers on Shadow and Bone, and Eric chose them deliberately because they could bring multiple life experiences into the room. To know that one of my writers was a refugee who escaped Sarajevo, I know that will come into play in a number of political moments within the world of, of, of Grishaverse. Um, if I have half of my room as mixed race, I know there are going to be plenty of opportunities to talk about Alina, but also Jesper. We need as much representation on the sort of the sexuality spectrum as well, because some of that is baked into the fiction. And also some of it is about getting to write a fantasy world that we haven't necessarily seen before that breaks out of the sort of like the hetero mold. I've been turned off by that kind of fantasy fiction before. The true test for this crack team of writers was having the crow set out to cross the Shadowfold. Remember, this storyline does not exist in Lee's books. That episode of the show was assigned to Dagan to write. She wanted that sequence to be a way of testing the crows to see how they act under pressure. After all, they're in a broken down train with an untrustworthy conductor named Arkin being attacked by flesh-eating Volker. Stupid thing is impaled itself from the spike. We wanted to explore who these people are when they're in peril as well, too. What does Kaz do when faced with death? What does Dinej do? What does Jesper do? And so this is sort of why we had these sort of elements happening within the train that Kaz you know, goes into kind of 
planning mode, and Inej goes straight into her faith, and Jesper's... This is how we die! You know, we had this goat for him, so that it was an exploration of, of Jesper, who is always kind of carefree and fun. And then what does it look like for Jesper when he is actually facing death? Jesper, grab the goat. I'm not throwing out the goat! Grab the damn goat! It's not bait, it's for you! I need you to calm down, hug the goat, and shut the hell up. Milo is... I love him! So, Milo was birthed by Dagan. Frequent. She, she was like, she loves goats. She has an affinity for goats. You know, I think it just sort of started in when Arkin is giving the list of things to do. And it was like, well, it just seemed like a fun beat for Jesper, for Arkin to kind of size up Jesper and say... A goat. That we were, you know, kind of playing on this misdirect that the goat might be a thing that can get thrown out as bait for the Volcra. The misdirect being that Arkin's intention was never to throw out the goat, that it was always as a support animal for Jasper. And the second she made this joking pitch about like an emotional support goat, I was like, that goat's my favorite character on the show. And then I also named the goat Milo after Dagon's dog, because I was like, Dagon, this is your baby. We need to make sure Milo is eternal. So yeah. It's an homage to my little dirtbag rescue dog from Tacoma, Washington, Milo. But the reality of actually acting with a goat wasn't so fun. First of all, on set, there was not one, but two baby goats to handle, which made shooting tough for Kit, Freddy, and Amita. They were called Ugri and Bugri, which apparently means running and jumping. Uh, those are the those are the goats' name. The, what they really should have been called was screaming and pooping, because when I had to pick one up, or any of us picked one up, one of them was always the one that would scream. You know that kind of that goat scream video, like that. And except one you of can't them, pause the video. <laughs> except you can't pause the video, and one of them uh, would you know. Would, would be terrified of the fact that there's four people with weapons in a box of fire and would poo everywhere. Um, and so we had to stop, obviously, to, to, to clean that up. Second, the train they're crammed inside has a real fire burning in it. And it's actually moving. There'd always be, like, two people either side of the scene jumping up and down, making everything move. And it's just one of those things where you kind of have to look around and go... This is the magic of movies or of filmmaking, yeah. or of television. Like, this is the crazy stuff that people still do to get these amazing effects. Like, mm. uh, we can we can create all these amazing things with CG and, and all these visual effects, but, like, those practical elements, that it's just, just like a couple of your mates having a good time, like jumping up and down, kind of makes the magic work, which is a, yeah. which is a crazy thing. Sometimes you just need to shove a leaf blower in someone's face for it to look magical, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and finally, the train is compact. That means it's very tight quarters for four people and a baby animal. It was three days, basically, of us going through this one huge sequence that was tricky to film, 
at best because I've never had to shoot a gun more than twice and now I'm shooting it like 12 times in one scene and I've only got use of one hand because there's a goat there and I'm worried that the goat's going to kick me or Freddy's face because he's next to me and Amita's there kind of holding a knife and I'm like, if I trip, I'm going to fall into the blade of your knife and yeah, it was it was amazing and bizarre at the same time but uh, and, and high octane because we all think we're going to die so you know, good stuff But if it could be up to writer Christina Strain, Milo would be back as a regular member of the Crows found family. You know, after Jesper has his relationship arc with the goat, like I was just like, we have to bring this goat back. We have to bring this goat back. So when we found a way to bring him back and have Mal interact with him, I was super freaking excited because I was like, the goat. All I really want to write for the rest of my life is like really difficult scripts to shoot with lots of animals in them. And this goat is going to be one of them. Oh, thank you. Oh, you smell. By the end of season one, the crows are on a massive sand skiff about to cross the fold again. Will they survive this time or get eaten by Volcra? Well, if they do, they're not going to cry about it. No mourners. No funerals. I was actually on set the day they said, no mourners, no funerals. For Lee Barduco, the phrase is gone from the bond between the crows to a way of expressing the bond between her and the fans of the Grishaverse, the world she created with her books. Now, the series. I, it was very special because I know how many readers have embraced those words and quoted those words back to me. It's our greeting to each other in the fandom and the way we say hello and the way we say goodbye. And it's also, you know, I've seen the tattoos that, uh, of this on people and it to then have people pick it up and make it their own is very meaningful. And then to see that echoed in the show and to know that that when that show airs, you know, in living rooms all around the world, when they say no mourners, you're going to hear an echo of no funerals was pretty cool. Next week, we'll be exploring a different kind of relationship, the romantic shit, the kind that sparks instant attraction and the kind that can come from an old friend. I mean, for me, the ship is always about the slow burn. Like, I just love a slow burn. I want it to be, I want to be in agony before I get that first kiss. This is the Behind the Scenes podcast, Shadow and Bone. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. I'm your host, Brandon Jenkins. Till next time.